just the way people are getting things has completely changed. And the Kickstarter is not just a way to raise money, but it's also a marketing platform. So it's a way to get more eyes on your project than you could with your smaller sort of social group. A friend of mine who is a stand-up comic said, The worst time to be an artist is the best time to be an artist. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Christina Wald, a Cincinnati-based illustrator, artist and educator, about how she has blazed an independent trail in the evolving landscape of freelance illustration and art. Christina has worked in toy and product design and taken on dozens of illustration jobs of all kinds, including over 60 children's books. That's six with a zero after it. This is a conversation about how to work for yourself while meeting client expectations, because both of those things are necessary to sustain yourself creatively and financially. For a short time, this is a conversation about elk, and the things one accidentally learns when illustrating a book about deer. But zooming out, this is a conversation about how to be independent. Christina has demonstrated this in many different ways, which is also important, I think. We talk about her multiple successful Kickstarter projects, and especially her latest, a beautiful book of which I also have a copy. Sketching here and everywhere, my sketching obsession. I came into this conversation with a basic understanding of Kickstarter, and by the end, I was amazed that I actually knew so little about the global crowdfunding market. Two questions run through my mind. One, why am I not doing this already? And two, is this the best time to be an artist? In this episode, you will find the most relevant, practical advice to chart your path as an independent creative person of any kind. If you desire to create what you want, communicate directly with your audience and make a living from doing it, listen carefully. Good morning, Christina, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I am absolutely delighted to speak with you today. Oh, it's great to talk to you, too. I've enjoyed listening uh, to your podcast. Tell me about some of the episodes you enjoyed listening to. I've had such a long disconnect from the show that uh, your this conversation with you is me climbing back into this role, and it feels a little strange to be doing it again. I've been sort of second-guessing what I want to do and how I want to do things with this, you know, post this break from the show. And it's always nice to hear from somebody who listens to the show. Well, I really actually have been enjoying uh, today listening to the Ask Me Anything that you did where you were talking about yourself, because Uh I figured that was a good one to listen to since I was just about to talk to you. And it was interesting hearing about your journey to becoming an artist. Because I think that's one of, especially if you are an art educator, that's always in your mind, not only your personal journey, 
but the journey that many artists are starting and what their career is going to be in this very changing world. Yeah, that's that's so true. And, you know, uh, now I find that people, because of, you know, the democratization of all this knowledge and how easy it is to educate yourself on so many aspects of becoming an artist, becoming an illustrator and working in all these various fields, becoming an animator even. And there used to be uh, like a very formal path towards these things, which required the specific kind of education. Mm -hmm. But now you have people from all these different avenues of life coming into these fields, pursuing uh, pursuing their passions, mm -hmm. irrespective of what they were educated in. So you're an educator yourself. Tell me a little bit about the kind of people you see who want to study comics or who want to learn to become illustrators. I think... The most interesting thing is people don't necessarily have a day-to-day -day idea of what doing illustration as a profession is because it's not just, I mean, there's so many aspects of it, but, you know, and I think that's true of any career, no matter what you're doing, you're saying, you say, I want to do X and you think, and when you say you want to do X, what does that actually mean? What's your day-to-day -day process of doing something? And there are a lot of aspects to illustration that are sale, record keeping, finding work, making sure you deciding what kind of work you want to do. And part of it is kind of going with the flow. I mean, I think it's really hard to envision that when you're young, especially perhaps now with the, I don't want to say specter of social media, but it kind of is because it's sort of a elephant in the room that a lot of illustrators are and, and beginning artists are interacting with that is is I don't know if it necessarily is a it can be a career launcher but it's definitely noise that might distract you from whatever your journey is I think that what a lot of artists starting out if they want to do it professionally is they should be open to whatever it leads you to because it's not going to unfold the way that you think it will. Yeah, Maybe you know, that's, uh, that's such a good point because uh, social media has been both of these things for me. It has mm -hmm. been a launch pad, but it has also been this noise in the back of my mind. And this, uh, the way that it's a launch pad is, you know, that's the seductive aspect of it. That's why people start their channels and they hope that they'll just go viral or something like that will happen. Somebody will discover them. But we don't really respect or we don't really acknowledge the ways in which it is noise. And I feel like one of those things is that, you know, you're expected to be this finished product as soon as your channel is there and people see your work and this obligation really weighs on people. So I think that's what you're sort of referring to, that people don't feel this, uh, don't give themselves this space to try things, to to wear many different hats and to try to do different kinds of things because they want to become a very specific thing and become known for a very specific thing as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing actually that I find exciting about illustration is that you learn, you learn to be an, I don't want to say expert, but you learn a lot about stuff that you probably would have never normally pursued because when you have to illustrate something, you have to know what it looks like and you have to research that. So there's a lot of research to it and making sure you don't draw it wrong. I mean, it's not as, in, what I do is not as intense as my medical illustrator friends who actually have to watch surgeries and have to illustrate things for court cases and that sort of thing that has to be extremely accurate. I mean, fortunately I have a little leeway with that, but you end up learning a lot of stuff about 
subjects you would have never thought you would learn about. Uh, I did a book on elk a couple of years ago. And when I started on the book, er, I was given a textbook that was like three inches thick. That was like everything <laughs> you ever could imagine about an elk. And you're having to illustrate them. And, and so that was kind of interesting. Tell me something about elks that I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, it was interesting because when we were going on our first meetings and meeting with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, they were talking, and this was before social media was as big as it is now. So it was probably like maybe 2010. And one of the scientists said that they get calls all the time because people think that deer, elk, and moose are all the same animal. And it's like the deer grow into the elk that grows into the moose, uh-huh. which seems <laughs> like it would be very obvious that they're very different animals. But apparently that's not true. Yeah, I think it's just, it's just, it's almost like cats grow into tigers. Exactly. That's exactly the thought process that people had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I and I've noticed the, the breadth of your work, the diversity of your work. You've done botanical illustrations, you've done animals, and you've done children's book illustrations. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different aesthetics to respect and to... Uh, to to be you know because you're speaking to such different audiences that regard illustration in so many different ways, but also your illustration is uh, is part of is doing so many different jobs. Like it feels almost like it has a different duty in a children's book as it does in a book about botanical illustrations. Well, I think that that is just a long career in illustration. I mean, I started illustrating, and this makes me sound really old. Um, I graduated from college in 1991, so I've been illustrating for a lot of different things for a very long time. And so what you see when you go to my website is just a spread of all the different stuff that I've worked on. And that doesn't even include design and, and that sort of thing, because I've done a lot of industrial design over the years, too. I mean, that's basically been my day job. And so when you look at a career of illustration, you see a bunch of different stuff and a lot of unusual things. and you know, I've been lucky to work on a lot of really different properties and that sort of thing. I mean, that's actually why I got into urban sketching, because I mm-hmm. got into urban sketching probably about 2012, 2011, 2012. And it was a way to fall in love with drawing again, because so much of my work is laborious and paintings that take days or weeks to finish. And I just liked being outside drawing and doodling and just doing whatever I want. Comics have always been kind of like that for me too, because I love comics. I love drawing them. They end up being more on the peripheral of my career. I think just maybe by the nature of what the comic industry is and mm-hmm. fitting a big graphic novel. I've been toying with it for a few years, but that is such a large project. And I get so many picture books, like I'm booked out probably for the next two years. So I can't, mm-hmm. I can't fit ginormous projects in with I, I, actually the book that I'm working on sketching is a ginormous project I've been shoehorning into my schedule. So it's been very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I really want to talk about this book. But uh, first, I do want to go back to your mm-hmm. education. So I know that you studied industrial design. Yes. And as you mentioned, you graduated in 1991. Tell me a little bit about uh, studying then and just this, you know, you mentioned at the start of our conversation that so many people want to become illustrators or they have this idea that this is the kind of thing they would like to do, this glamorous idea of whether it is art or illustration or comics. And they don't, they're not fully acquainted with the day to day and the other, the 
the ancillary responsibilities around it so yeah. tell me a little bit about uh, when you were studying and what you thought you wanted to be and the ideas you had about it well when i started school i was actually in graphic design i went to university of cincinnati i live in ohio and they have a really good industrial design program but i didn't know what industrial design was i wanted to do illustration but a lot of colleges don't have illustration programs which i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing i think illustration is a hard career to be in if all you have is an illustration degree i think and and that could be a whole separate discussion i think you're a better illustrator if you're well-rounded about a lot of different things because like my description of having to know a lot about different things and being able to study and find out about them that actually will serve you better as an illustrator than just learning technique technique is an always evolving thing i mean i'm still playing around with technique my latest picture book i'm working on is in gouache and i haven't painted in gouache since college so you know i'm always trying different techniques and different materials and so the actual practice of illustration is an evolving one the important thing is being able to learn and change and figure out what your project needs and learn about things. So I started studying graphic design and I decided I wasn't really that at the time. And this is before computers, really. I think we got our first right. Mac lab in my senior year of college, which really, pre mm -hmm. which that might be a good thing. I don't know, but they did a lot of stuff with type and typography. And I respect the career of learning about typography, but I wanted to draw more and industrial design is a lot of sketching. Right. It's a lot of sketching product concept. And so I, my introduction to industrial design was visiting my school and seeing their industrial design senior show. And my mom and I were wowed by it and thought it was really impressive. So my freshman year, I changed to industrial design and it was a really good education for exploration and learning how to apply do problem solving and that sort of thing. I mean, I think any illustration career should probably be prepared with design because so much of it is in tandem with design. Yeah, yeah, that's such a that's such a good point. Uh, so uh, how did you find your way towards illustration after this, after your education? Well, I started, I always had wanted to do comics. And so the first couple of years when I, like my senior year of college and when I was first getting out, I started going to comic conventions. Um, all, one thing that UC has is co-op. So I co-opted at Kenner Toys. That's actually where I met my husband was he uh, was working at Kenner Toys. And so I was staying in, in Cincinnati. So I started developing my career and practice there. And I, was too slow when I started to do comics because comics is a lot of artwork. I mean, I guess that's the big takeaway if you want to do illustration as a career is I don't think many people are quite prepared for just how much art a book has, even if it's a 32-page picture book or eight-bread board book or whatever. It is, a, it is almost like an art marathon. It is a lot of work. And comic, you have done comics before, is sort of like 10 marathons. <laughs> oh, yes. Because it is, it is creating so much work from, say, the writing to the final work. And so I ended up doing a lot of artwork for games. It was around the time that Magic the Gathering came out. So everybody mm -hmm. was doing work for card games. And I just, because I could draw a lot of tech stuff well, I did a lot of artwork for the Star Wars role-playing game. And I did a lot of work for card games like for Lord of the Rings and Dune and all these great properties that I also love, coincidentally. So... 
I ended up sort of sidelined. Like I, when I mentioned earlier, you should be open to anything. I was sort mm -hmm. of sidelined for years working on those types of properties. And then sort of the end of the 90s, a lot of those companies. And when we segue into our discussion about publishing, Mm -hmm. publishers sort of have an expiration date, like companies were going under because as things become popular and less popular, you see companies go under. And one of the companies that I worked a lot for um, went under, actually not because of their own product lines, but because the company that owned them went under and took them with it. And right. so I worked at a design agency for a couple of years and redid my portfolio. Um, but over the years, I've also done a lot of um, you know, giftware. And so I've ended up doing a lot of really different products and illustrations for things. How I got into children's books is sort of a backdoor way. I, I mean, I guess I'm kind of, a, I believe that sort of your, I kind of let things go the way they're going rather than as actively pursuing them. And in a way, that's kind of the, the thing that I think a lot of artists, perhaps when they're starting out, aren't as open to is because and, and it's much easier these days to show your work around. People might ask you to do something that you would have never thought, oh, I'm going to do a book of elk one day. Like, that's not something I would have sent my portfolio <laughs> to someone for. But then you end up doing these these projects because somebody else sees your work. And so the way I got into children's books was I was working for a giftware company and I was designing a lot of industrial design stuff for them, too. I was designing wind chimes and little fountains and, you know, that sort of thing. And then they also did heat transfer flags, which are flags that you hang on your house with paintings on them. And so I did some paintings of some animals and I put them on my portfolio, which at the time, that was a new thing, putting your work online. And right. Elastic saw it and said, oh, we love your animal paintings. And so I started doing artwork for Scholastic News. And then I started getting booked because of that. That's that's such an interesting path. And I wonder if, you know, we were just talking about uh, the specter of social media and, uh, you know, becoming a brand. Do you think that some of these some of these leaps would have been difficult for you to take if you were thinking of yourself as a public facing illustrator who is known for something and has an audience for something? I think so. I think there's there's always been the debate with commercial art about fashion over you know, fad and fashion over traditional styles. My work has always sort of been very traditional in a lot of ways. Um, and it's very, there's a siren song to say, oh, I want to do the type of illustration that's really popular right now. But the problem is, and I got really good advice early on in my career. I had an illustration mentor that, you know, gave me a lot of advice about dealing with clients and that sort of thing. And he used to say that I had a good meat and potato style. He said, I'd never win any awards, but I'd always be busy. <laughs> and, but he always warned against chasing trends. Um, you know, there's a right. lot of styles that you see online and they're beautiful, but they're very ubiquitous and a lot of people do them. And mm -hmm. so at some point you have to say, which am I going to follow this every trend or am I going to just do what I do and people will find it? And it takes a long time to agree to sort of what fate has set for you. But Get, you eventually realize, I, you know, this is my skin that I'm in. And so this is a type of work I do. And sure, it may not be something that necessarily will go viral, but mm -hmm. it is something that enough people want to pay for, yeah, which is the whole yeah. goal of commercial art is you're 
having people pay you to do your work. And not everyone's going to do that. Not everybody. And that's the thing I try to impart in students. You don't need to have everybody wanting your work. You just need enough people to pay your bills. Yeah. And this is this is such an important understanding. I feel like, again, social media comes in the way and it does trying to be the biggest account and trying to get the most the infinite number of likes like no matter how many you get there are always more mm-hmm. and this this it disconnects us from i feel like what i really what i recently realized was that uh, a social media following even a large one it disconnects you from individuals and from actual real people and you sort of abstract uh, the people who love your work into these numbers and then you're always chasing bigger numbers Mm-hmm. And so you 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 lose touch of, you know, as you mentioned, the people who will care about your work and the people who matter, the people who will commission you or the people who will give you, bring you great jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the the career of illustration is a constantly evolving one. And I mean, it could segue into many different discussions about what publishing is like and how it's changing I know we're going to talk a little bit about Kickstarter and how that's changing publishing, Mm -hmm. like the whole landscape of everything. And the thing that's interesting is that it's not unusual. It's the thing that I've found over my career is when you see people panicking, like the latest panic is AI. Right. But the thing is, if you talk to older illustrators, for example, when I in the early 2000s, I remember the big fear was stock art and everybody was freaking out that stock art was going to be the end of the world. Right. And then this mentor I was describing, he he talked about photography and how it changed everything for illustrators. And so there's always going to be that next thing that's going to change the whole landscape. But I don't think that means things are going to go away. I mean, I think if anything, AI might have a resurgence in people doing traditional work and traditional materials as sort of, there's always a... I don't want to use the word backlash because that sounds hostile, but there's always a reaction. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's actually something I've thought about, too. Like I, I like that comparison that you just made was very apt because this is something uh, I recently framed to my readers that in a few years, AI art is going to take basically the place of stock images. And it's 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 going to be as, quote unquote, valuable as GettyImages.com. Because it's going to be so ubiquitous, it's going to be so easy to make and so, you know, zero cost to create, zero cost in terms of money as, as well as time, that by definition, it's going to be the middle of the road work. And anybody who wants beyond that is going to reach to a human. Because again, something that is zero cost is something that anybody can replicate. And what we want humans for is something that only that human can do. And the definition of what only a human can do that has evolved over time and that has, you know, it's met with resistance, but it's always become something unexpected and something beautiful. So tell me, uh, this evolving landscape, now this is something I was going to touch on and we've fortunately come upon it. Uh, since since you graduated, like since the 90s, so much has changed. Like there was firstly the fad towards everything moving towards digital art. And then this resurgence of traditional techniques, to some extent, if we can think of it like that. But describe it for me. Tell me what it's been like, because you've been uh, working in this field since then. You've been work not just drawing for yourself, but uh, trying to meet the demands and the requirements of an industry. So what has been this process of constantly educating yourself and being on top of how to do things? 
Well, I always have liked doing a lot of different things. I mean, one thing you can tell by looking at it is I have a lot of interests. I, I love a lot of different properties. I love. And so I love doing digital art. I have a Cintiq and I work on, I've been using Photoshop since Photoshop started. <laughs> and I don't realize how complex Photoshop is till I'm explaining how to do something to someone else. Like when I teach digital painting classes and I say, well, it's in this menu, in this menu, and then you go into this menu and click this thing. And it's like, it's been so ingrained for so long that I don't remember how complex it is explaining to someone that's never seen it before. And so it's sort of been a gradual entrance in, and I love what you can do with digital art. And I love a lot of the techniques. The one thing that I think that traditional painting has is that it's, and it doesn't mean that digital painting will never get there as much as digital painting might look like watercolor or look like there are still happy accidents that I don't think the mathematics have, and that doesn't mean that they won't. And maybe that's where AI comes in. There's, there's something about the happy accidents and the physics of traditional media that is too complex to replicate exactly. Sure, it looks, you can make a decent facsimile of those things, but it's, and there's something about working in traditional materials that I think is ultimately more satisfying. Um, I think that I've always sort of mixed it up. Uh, sometimes I'll work on a book, you know, the last book I did was digital. The book I'm doing now is traditional. I kind of alternate them depending on what I feel like doing. I mean, sometimes it doesn't even necessarily matter what the subject matter is. I just might feel like working in traditional over. And it's probably good that I mix it up. So considering it, when you do this long time as a career, there are a lot of things like carpal tunnel and the way you work, um, if it's not in an ergonomic way, can injure you. And I have had many friends that have had surgeries or had back problems and things that sidelined them. Absolutely. Like I, uh, like a few years ago, actually, this might be the last big comic I made. I made a graphic novel. Uh, oh my like gosh. It was, it was only online. So it, I don't know if I can call it a graphic novel, but I it was like... Online it was like 80, 85 pages. That's and I wrote the story and I drew it and it was a nightmare. Uh, like you said, 10 marathons, but it was just excruciating, not only mentally, not only emotionally, but also physically. Like I did things to my neck and my shoulders that I needed all kinds of exercising and all kinds of, uh, you know, treatment for. And fortunately, I'm out of it now. And I learned a lot of things about good posture. But oh my God, like that was that was intense. Like I, I feel like anybody who sets out to make a comic by themselves is legitimately insane. And if their family and friends can pull them away from it physically, then they should. <laughs> it is an intense experience to illustrate comics. And so many people want to do it because they're beautiful and they're so interesting. I mean, I have always thought that comic art is... And it, it, there's so many directions this could go into. I, I've always thought it was the most authentic contemporary art. For years, you know, you go to MoMA or whatever, and occasionally they'll put a nod to comics, but never in a way that's meaningful when that actually is one of the biggest thermometers of society is what people write about in comics. And there's so many things beyond the typical sort of superhero comics, although the superhero comics are no different than the stories in previous societies of the gods and that sort of thing. Nothing's changed, right. just the media. 
tell me a little bit about this like comics as a as a thermometer for the way society is thinking their aspirations things like that well I, a lot of like even the most popular zines that people were reading in the 70s and earlier the golden age of comics often took up social issues like marvel comics was one of the early adopters of talking about social issues and you know racism and that sort of thing and it, it's interesting now because you see people complaining about it when they tackle those things now when they were some of the first people talking about these things and just there's a lot of autobiographical comics um if you've read persopolis oh yeah i mean that's an amazing comic about growing up in iran i think it's one of the best graphic novels that i've ever read absolutely and there's so it's there's so much that it tells about human experience with the combination of writing and visuals that i think that it's a picture into society that is it does something in a way that movies can't do too because it's it's a more intimate experience when you're reading a comic whether it's online or in a book yeah yeah uh, i was reading this uh, like the, i'm reading this book by will eisner about mm-hmm. teaching sequential art he's I amazing it's like his art his of course his comics are incredible and this is the only how to draw or how to make comics book that i advocate to people i am not usually a fan of how to dot 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 books but i absolutely loved his book on how to make sequential art and this is something he talks about like how uh, like just like movies they combine the visual and uh the text in a way is resounding in your ears so it is like audio in a sense and the way that the letter works with even sounds onomatopoeic sounds it it sort of you start to hear it in your mind you're not reading it as much as hearing it but uh you sort of control the frame rate you control the speed at which you move you can go back and forward again you can flip a few pages back and then look at something and give it time instead of flipping past it so there's a bit there's a degree of control you have over all this information assimilation that you don't in a movie in a movie you're being taken on this ride so you can in one sense you're taking it the way that it's been presented to you the way it's quote unquote intended to be uh, taken in another sense uh, you're very you can become quite passive with it which is something that i think we do now like everybody is watching tv while scrolling on their phones mm-hmm. so we're we're doing we're not really invested in the experience but comics and even reading just just reading a book mm-hmm. you can't do it while doing another second thing mhm and that's actually how sketching is too you're kind of separated about from other people in a way even if you're group sketching you're still you're focusing on that and you're not looking at your phone and you're not doing anything else and that's one of the big appeals i, I think is yeah. getting away from your desk and it forces you to sort of interact and notice things in a way that you would never do that when you're distracted all the time by other things yeah on the subject of uh, both digital and analog tools and the importance of both how do you approach it with your students what do they uh, tend to prefer and what do you emphasize to them well um for illustration it has to eventually be digital so I don't really care what tools they use they just need to learn how to scan them well if you're going to I mean I tell people they can do illustration in any media they want they could sculpt it if they want they could do cut paper they could spray paint it on a wall I don't really care how you do the illustration it has to be digitized in some way so it can be either put online or for print 
And so you need to know how to take that spray painting you did on the wall and color correct it and upload it so it's high res enough for whatever you're using it for. And so that's kind of more what I emphasize. I think that the difficulty with teaching illustration is that it is so broad that you don't necessarily want to focus on technique so much as communication and meeting the parameters, whatever the project that you're doing requires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you were mentioning, these other aspects of being an illustrator, which don't necessarily have to do with how well you draw or mm -hmm. how well you can, you know, how beautiful your work is, but really the business aspect of it, of being, uh, like keeping your accounts and seeking mm -hmm. work and soliciting work. So what what are some what are some ideas around this like because i feel like it's simultaneously more difficult and far easier than ever before it's it's a, it's both of these things at once to to do work now to work for other people yeah it's certainly the goal to eventually just do my own stuff i mean that's kind of the dream i hope to eventually just do my own i mean that's one thing doing this book that i'm about to send to press now it's kind of emboldened me to do my own projects and my own uh, you know pursue my own ideas but obviously when you're getting started you have to have enough money to pay rent and pay your bills and in a way you're right the, what happens now and it's 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 contrary to most of the advice people have given about illustration because i i don't know how many illustration podcasts that i see that they're like you know only put 15 pieces of your best work up and they see one piece they don't like They'll hate it and they won't hire you, which is absolutely not true. What happens really is people do a Google search on images and they find an image you have done and they love it and they want you to do that for them. So I don't even know if they look at much of your, the rest of your portfolio. What happens is they kind of fall in love with an image you have done. Mm -hmm. And so that means it's best to have a website. There's a lot of good portfolio websites, having your work searchable by Google or something like that, because most art directors, that's how they find the images. It's not like in the old days where they had the directory of illustration that artists paid like several thousand dollars to be in. It was very expensive. And it was this giant doorstop of a book that people would mm -hmm. put basically ads in. And if you could imagine like flipping through these books that weighed 15 pounds to find yeah. artists, I mean, it was a very different, and that probably is why you had this whole ecosystem of art agents and literary agents, which a lot of those structures are kind of starting to break down because they're sort of not necessary anymore. Yeah. Do you, do you see that as largely a good thing? Is there anything we're losing in, in, in by, by, you know, not having space for these, well, uh, middlemen? I think it depends on what kind of person you are. I mean, there are people that really are not comfortable pursuing work. And again, half of working as an illustrator is really a sales job and, and getting your work out there and getting it to the right people. The thing that's complicated is that most of the time when people hire you, you didn't actually approach them. They found your work. And I think it's, right. and so it's that opposite sort of thing. Like, let's say I wanted to work for this particular client and I sent work to them. It's highly unlikely that I'll get a job from them, not because they don't like my work, but because they don't have a project that's appropriate for it. 
Right. And so they might love your work and keep it for a very long time. Like I actually got a book a couple of years ago and this person got my postcard 10 years ago. And then they got this project <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's something you could barely even imagine that somebody would keep a postcard that long. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, these wow. sorts, these sorts of things happen sometimes, but that's the, the sort of it, paradox may not be the right word, but that's why your best bet to get your work seen is do artwork that you want to do and put it right. out there. Because we used to joke that when you never have a car or a bike in your portfolio, unless you like drawing them, because every illustrator I know, if they have a car or a bike, they get a book or a project involving drawing them a lot. So, <laughs> and it's not that art directors don't have imagination. It's just that more and more they don't have to like if they want to do a book on tigers there's eight thousand tiger pictures they can pick out but in a way that also gives you as an illustrator leverage because if they've picked your tiger out of eight thousand tigers then you have a little bit of negotiating room because right. it's hard to make that decision and especially if it's for a publisher five or six people have made that decision and so when you are negotiating with them you realize like there was one book i worked on and they told me that it was down to 20 illustrators and I was the only one that was on everybody's list. And it, that was like five or six people. So when you do those number crunching, by the time they come to you, there's already been the arguments and that sort of thing. They just want to know right. if they're available. And so that's right. when you say that you have a little bit more leverage to negotiate your, your yeah. project. That's such a good point. I'm thinking about like, I'm, I'm still stuck on that postcard from 10 years ago. Because I'm thinking about how uh, you've been working for uh, like over two decades. So what happens when somebody commissions you looking at some art that you sent them or they saw, which is 10 or 15 years old. And as an illustrator, as an artist yourself, you've moved on to other techniques or to other, you know, just other ways of doing things. Has that happened? Do you, is, is that a conflict? Do you sometimes have to go back in time? Fortunately, I haven't had to do that yet. Um, I feel like I've been really lucky that most of the people that I work with tend to embrace whatever direction I choose to go with the work. So fortunately, that hasn't been an issue. The more it's, it, it gives you more humorous anecdotes. Like, for example, one of the flags that I did was a picture of a non-branded green tractor because they didn't have the John Deere license. So I got a call from the people doing John Deere children's books and they wanted me to do and the thing that was funny about that was that it was cartoony tractors, but the tractor in my portfolio was like a realistic one. So sometimes you get some weird projects like that. Um, now, we're thinking about also like this is all about being an illustrator and this business of being an artist, of of doing this in a way that not only satisfies you, but also pays bills, also gets you clients. And so, you know, Kickstarter is a fascinating new thing in this field. And you've done Kickstarter before, mm -hmm. but I want to talk a little bit about your latest project, which um, now as I read, it's you're at the point of fulfillment. You're about to send out. Yes, we're, we're about to send it to the printer. Um, as with any project that's massive, it everything always takes longer than every... It, things have gone well, but it's sort of everything you do, it just... Time is sort of, with any project, doing comics, doing children's books, you'd think after illustrating 60 picture books, you'd have a better idea how quickly something takes. But everything is its own ecosystem, if you will, in 
project has its own spirit and its own trajectory. And so we're getting very close to printing, but my, you know, it had a lot of first, I've never written a book kind of like this, where it's for, for years, people have asked me to do a book about sketching. And, and I said, well, great. But I, I mean, that's not the type of writing I've ever done. You know, my, my whole interest level, as you could probably guess, has always been a little bit more towards the fantastical more than, you know, sort of instructional and also showing work and that sort of thing. So I started actually before I kickstarted it, I actually started a Patreon for it so that I could get a little seed money in it because it's really hard to work on something when you have a lot of other paying work. It's very easy to take on more paying work and just do that. And so it's kind of an excuse to fund something as you're working on it. So I've been working on it for, I'd been working on it probably for a little over a year before I did the Kickstarter. So we had talked about a little bit about planning and it really does take a lot of planning, building up a mailing list, figuring out all the aspects of it. And it, yet there's still stuff that you don't think about until kind of close to the end, like registering it with the Library of Congress, getting ISBN numbers, getting, in addition to sort of the editorial process and the design process. And I decided when I started working on this book, I wanted to use a designer and an editor just because I wanted it to be an interesting book to look through. And I have looked at a lot of art books where somebody just does everything on their own. And I, I can do graphic design, but I'm not, I don't do a lot of book layout. And so it felt important to get someone that knew what they were doing. And Cincinnati used to have FNW, which was a huge art book printer like they did for a while they were doing how magazine they do art watercolor magazine they did a bunch of things and so one of the designers sketches with us our urban sketching group in Cincinnati all the time and so when I was working on this I asked her about doing this because she's laid out a lot of urban sketching books like she's she she did Danny Gregory's book she did and so she has a lot of knowledge that she lives like a couple miles away so and she got an editor and unfortunately, FNW went down again when I was talking about the life of publishers. It was that typical corporate story where the publisher was doing fine, but they were bought by a holding company that sort of just destroyed them and took all their assets. And so they're gone. I mean, all these people have gotten other jobs and it's really sad to see a publishing company that did so much. And I don't think anything has really stepped up to replace it. I think things were kind of broken up into other smaller companies and that sort of thing. But I don't think that the art book industry has necessarily recovered. And so I've had a couple other people that are interested in publishing it. And now I'm kind of like, well, is this going to happen to every publishing company? Every time I see a headlight about a publisher, it's like, even if they're huge, something terrible is happening to it. And so that's where Kickstarter comes in because never at a time has there been a situation where you can do all of this stuff yourself and put, you know, so eventually the book will be for sale. I mean, you could pre-order it now, but you can do it bypassing a lot of the traditional ways that things were sold because people don't necessarily get books in bookstores anymore. Matter of fact, when I was at Michael's just the other day getting art supplies, they had no books at all where they used to have a whole wall with them. And so just the way people are getting things and 
getting this you know, reading material has completely changed. And the Kickstarter is not just a way to raise money, but it's also a marketing platform. So it's a way to get more eyes on your project than you could with your more with your smaller sort of social group. And so it's its own sort of ecosystem that is really changing. I think the way artists, it's not just visual arts, but, you know, dance troops get money through it and music groups get money through it. And it's a, a really nice way not only to advertise it, but to also get people that wouldn't necessarily have bought it to, to pick it up. And then that stays on there and you, people can order from the site. And so I think there's a lot to recommend it. You know, obviously everything has its pros and cons, but I think it's a really interesting and exciting way for artists to get their work out there. Because especially like talking about comics, like the traditional way was going to conventions and conventions. I mean, they were a lot of fun and that sort of thing, but it's also a huge amount of time investment sitting at a table, making merch for a table. It is it is own business, and I think that this, you know, Kickstarter has really helped a lot of comic publishers and art book publishers. It's a great way to kind of get your work to a bunch of different audiences. Right, and you've used Kickstarter before for yes. this comics anthology that you made, the Cincinnati Cabinet yeah, of yes, Curiosities. Yeah, yes, that was a lot of fun. Yes, which was which looks so interesting, and I love that it's this anthology bringing together people, and it's looking at these. Uh, strange aspects of history like cryptids and uh, supernatural history and things like this. So uh, this part of Kickstarter is something I wasn't aware of. Uh, you say that it helps you also reach beyond your own social network, your own uh, network of well followers or whatever. Yes, it is a... There are a lot of people that shop on Kickstarter like you would be on Amazon or something. They just go through hmm. projects and buy stuff. And... That is its own sort of social media itself. And so you get a lot of people. I mean, that was one thing that was interesting working on a project like, since a cabinet of curiosities is that it's not, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very small region. Cincinnati is not of interest to a lot of people outside of Cincinnati, um, you know, but it did get, we shipped it all over the country. You know, people were interested in it. And I mean, I think part of it is the ubiquitous of lore. I mean, one thing that I found out from working on this project, and then we also do a podcast called Hometown Haunts. Um, the editor of the book, Kat, uh, worked on a paranormal radio show for years. So she knows all this stuff that I didn't know about lore. And the thing that's so interesting about folk tales of any culture is just how every town has a story of a cryptid or a story. And you look at old newspapers, and I think it's all over the world, like everywhere they have their own lore of, you know, ghost creatures in the wild. And I think, you know, every story that's in there, you can find a matching story in another town. Like, for example, we had a guy that writes a lot of lore about Ohio in different states. And he said in Ohio alone, there were like 50 screaming bridge stories. <laughs> so okay. everybody thinks and i think part of it is there's there is still a robust sort of vocal oral lore everywhere people telling stories and 
perhaps some of that gets on Reddit now and that sort of thing, but it's still there. You know, everybody yeah. tells family stories and it's it's fascinating. Yeah. So uh, I want to talk a lot about Kickstarter because one of my big goals of this year is to also do a Kickstarter. I have awesome. never done a Kickstarter before, but I have self-published and my self-published book was similar. Like you just mentioned how, you know, uh, not a lot of people outside Cincinnati would care for Cincinnati stories as you thought. Uh, and it, I had the similar motivation to self-publish when I was living in a small town in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So I was living in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is if you absentmindedly point in somewhere in the middle of Wisconsin, you will accidentally hit Eau Claire. Really? Really? Uh, it's a beautiful place, but it's a small place. And I thought that I, I needed to make a book. I had never made a book before and I wanted to make a book and somebody recommended uh, an independent publishing press for it. And I just thought that there cannot, surely not many people outside of Wisconsin, outside of North Central Wisconsin will care about Eau Claire. So who, how, I, I don't know how I can interest a traditional publisher in this because I don't think I can confirm thousands of sales. The market simply doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So that's how I chose self-publishing. And I'm so glad I did that because I've learned so much from that experience of not only putting together a book, but uh, uh, like delegating tasks that I didn't want to take on myself. So having a book designer, a book layout designer for it and still exercising a lot of creative judgment in how I want it to look, how I want the experience of that book to be. Mm -hmm. But also the actual business of selling that book was so educational for me. Like I put myself out of my comfort zone in so many ways and I accessed so many parts of myself that I didn't know I had. I built skills in marketing, in mm -hmm. pitching, in doing events around it. And these are some of the things now uh, coming to your work that I'm so, so interested in because for Cabinet of Curiosities, you did the podcast and you did a Kickstarter. And now with Sketching Here and Everywhere, which is your latest book, there is this very interesting story of how, like, as you say about what motivated the book. So I want to take it right from the start. And with the general idea of it culminating with a Kickstarter, tell me a little bit about how, like, where did the motivation for this kind of book come to you? Like something that shares your sketching obsession and which is part uh, inspirational, but also part instructive. Well, as I said, a lot of people had asked if I would ever do a book on sketching. And so I had it in my mind to do it. And as one gets older, you kind of eventually say, well, I I need to do it or it's just not going to happen. <laughs> and if you keep with any project, you're kind of, if you keep saying, well, I'll do it, you know, at this time or whatever, it'll never happen. You have to actually give it a deadline and give it some sort of life so that you actually finish it. And, you know, so once you have done the book, then that's definitely motivation to publish it because you have to send it to all the people that have backed it. And so that forces you to get everything finished that you need to do. I mean, I think that's one of the hardest thing with any project is having enough inertia to get it to the end because it's easy to start project projects. I yeah. mean, I have probably, and probably you do too. I, every day I have, Oh, wouldn't it be cool to do this? You know? And, <laughs> and yeah, it would be, but then when you get down to it, there's a lot of moving parts to doing that. And oh, yes. Like, Ideas are so cheap, like it's exactly. so easy to have. And we, you know, early on, you think that the really difficult thing is to have an idea. 
and if only i had an idea and like now i realize ideas are just the easiest part of everything like really taking it to 60% but also then taking it from 60 75% to the end like that is the excru like that last mile of your race that is the really excruciating part i have abandoned so many projects <laughs> it is it it really takes a lot like the finishing of any project whether it's a book i mean you're always thinking of you know what you're going to be working on next and that is in a way the hardest and i don't know why a brain works that way but you know when you're working on projects you're always like well i want to do this and i want but when you're working on it you're thinking about i want to do this other thing and i don't know where that comes from and why there is always this thirst to do something else but i think it's because it it there's some sort of ideal that it is when you're first thinking like when it's that first thing and i even like the, my favorite part of a project is like doing the first sketches of it but then when you have to actually figure out how am i going to paint this nose and what am i going to do with all these scribbles that i had in the background and i have to paint all of that stuff now then it's like it becomes very grounded in reality and you have to finish it and get everything ready and that's you know ends up being the less glamorous parts and then of course you show it to the client or you have to edit it and proofread it and there's just so many other things that are extremely important but that you may not necessarily realize they have to have a life too in your project and so i was just talking with my mom about this you know project management yesterday because i mean a lot of doing a book is project management And so it's kind of like especially if you're using other people with the project it's like how how much should I bug them to get this done and you know knowing how I work and how I work with clients it's like you know that they'll get it done but you kind of want to know where things are and there's an art to project management that's very complex like figuring out when you should have one thing done and how much needs to be done I mean it's it gets really complicated Yeah. And so and then also figuring out when to do the Kickstarter. Do you do it when things are already printed or you do it I kind of did it in sort of the end stage process after I'd written the book and it was already we were kind of working on the design but there's always unexpected things and complexities, you know, supply chain issues, you know, where you can put the book and and all that sort of thing. Uh, the kickstarter in a way is the easiest part because that's just promotion and marketing and right i think where people maybe don't do well in it a kickstarter is, is they don't realize i have a couple friends that have run them and they don't realize that you have to promote it like every day if you want people to buy it like if you don't talk right. about it even if they want to back it they forget about it um strangely enough kickstarter is not in the top of their mind You know, that's not all they're thinking about. And so you're trying to persuade them to back this project. And right. they may love you and your artwork, but they may be driving their kids in the car somewhere when they see, you know, or hear something or hear you promote it. They're going to be listening to your podcast and hear you promote it. They say, oh, I want to back that. But they're like in the car. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's the thing that's most difficult about it is thinking that I'll just put this out there and people just come to it. Um, anyone that's ever tried to get people to sign up for a mailing list or something like that, it, that it's really hard to get people, even if they love it, to actually make that step. Absolutely. I mean, I had a student that did a comic for her senior project a couple of years ago, and most of the comic you had to scan a QR code. So she had like one page up and then a QR code, and a bunch of professors told her, "Well, you didn't do much work," and they were they never scanned the QR code to see the bulk <laughs> of the work. 
And I think that is a good representation of how lazy people are when it comes to stuff like that. Oh, yes. Like, uh, like I think the general rule of thumb is if you ask people to do, like, if, like, say, I think with a sale, like if you're trying to, if I'm trying to sell my book and they need to click three times to get there at every click, I'm going to lose like 50% of the people because they're going to get distracted or they'll think they'll do it another time or they just don't like they're done. They don't want to do it anymore. And this applies even to the people, like you say, the people who are your big fans, the people who definitely want to buy from you, to who want to support you. But still, it's so difficult. You have to be a little, quote unquote, shameless about it. Or at least you're going to guilt yourself into thinking that you're being shameless about it. it it's, it's really hard because you do have to mention it a lot. And still, there are people that won't notice it. And I think, it, I mean... For one thing, now social media is, I don't want to say it's against you, but they want you to pay for uh, them to see you for wanting access. to sell. Yes. And so you have that sort of thing that you don't have a lot of control over how these things work. Um, it seems like people are more willing to click on a Kickstarter from Facebook than, say, from Instagram. And I don't know if it if it's just the nature of the audience that I have or how a lot of this stuff works. And the thing that's crazy is that, again, it's a changing environment. So you, when you do your Kickstarter later this year, it's going to, it's, it's circumstances are always different. It's hard to say how it's going to do. I mean, the best thing you can do is talk about it a lot and have links to it. And you have a good, your mailing list is probably your largest tool because then you can talk about it and send email to people and, let them know about it and hope that yeah. they click on it but like you said getting just getting people to click on a mailing list is a huge challenge i mean ask anyone that has ever tried to build one absolutely so let's go let's go do before all of these things let's come back to the making of this book before mm -hmm. you put it on kickstarter um what were the decisions that went into how you wanted this book to look and uh, who it was exactly for and what the contents would then be well, you know, there are so many books out there that are, and, and you've talked about a little bit about instruction books. So I wanted it to be a little bit instruction and stuff I do with my students because I do a lot of sketch exercises with my students because I think that the hardest thing when coming up with ideas is you get kind of paralyzed by indecision. And so this book does have some urban sketching stuff too, but it also has sketching. I often do quick exercises where they're timed with people because a lot of times with students, if I give them two days to do sketches for a project, you'll get, they'll bring, you know, they bring them in and you, you say, well, this is what you did in two days. And it's not that they didn't try. Sometimes they've spent hours on those sketches. But if I give you five minutes and say, draw this, a lot of times those sketches are better than what I got after two days. And so that sort of is what a lot of the exercises in the book talk about is sort of breaking free of, you know, thinking too hard about it. And I think that there have, and, and then I also kind of have talk about personal experience and I talk about, about, because I think that whenever you do a book like that, you kind of have to approach it from your personal experience um, more than like how because I, I kind of approach things, I don't want to say differently than than other artists, because I, I don't know. I'm sure that as many people as there are, there are people that probably approach things the way that I do. But I try to approach it 
kind of the way that I've learned over the years to approach things. And that's sort of how I built these exercises. And then, you know, it's got some gallery pages and it talks a little bit about, you know, the stuff that one takes when they're doing sketching. And it, it doesn't really cover illustration at all. It is exclusively sketching because that is sort of my favorite thing to do. I mean, I always have my sketchbooks and I'm always doodling. It's sort of a way to, you know, it's just, it's just, and you probably do this yourself, obviously, you know, when you're waiting in line for something or you're doing something, it gives you something to do and you think about and speculate. It's where I come up with ideas and it, it sort of is an outlet that, that makes, that makes me a lot more excited about doing artwork. And so that's kind of what the book is about. And you know, we, we've structured it in chapters about different, and we actually ended up changing the, the order of the chapters too, because I think I had drawing from life later in, and then it felt like it needed to be earlier because it kind of combines with other things. And because it, it actually doesn't just talk about drawing from life, because I do a lot of drawing that's not from life, that's just from the brain. And so I have some exercises about that too. So it's got a bit more of it. So it's, it's, perhaps a little bit broader in sketching than than some other books it, it's sort of I, I one thing that was nice working with people that had worked at FNW before is my designer said one thing that they did whenever they did a book was where does this book fit in and think about a marketing plan for it and how is it different from other books and that actually really helps focus you on you know what is this book for who is it for and and so yeah I kind of put that together as I was writing it Right. And yeah, like I, I completely agree on that point. Like uh, before I made my book, uh, Sneaky Art of Eau Claire, um, I spoke to a couple of agents at this writing event in okay. Chicago. And the idea that I took from them was to, even if I choose to self-publish, to nevertheless write a nonfiction book proposal. Because exactly. of just this exercise of putting into words, who is your audience? Uh, what are some comparative titles for your books? What is imagining uh, very realistically the space it might occupy on a book in a bookstore on someone's bookshelf? And to understand who your audience is is to also sort of allow yourself to not speak to, not feel this obligation to speak to every single person, because you want every single person to buy your book, but. That is not the way to write anything, like not even a novel, not even a nonfiction book. So this mm -hmm. exercise of, you know, all the things around the book that were not the book that, you know, uh, as an artist, as a writer, you might feel these are the things that are the the commercial, the the lesser aspects of putting a book together. But they're so useful in giving you direction and to... To, to spur you with, you know, to help you conserve your energy for the things that matter, to help you really see the things that really matter. Mm -hmm. And also having done that book proposal also helps you with the Kickstarter because you're, you're, you have one line that's basically an elevator pitch. So someone that's scrolling through the art books and Kickstarter, that's all they see. And so they may not have ever heard of anything to do with, they just may want to sketch or draw or, you know, there's some other aspect of it that attracts them to buy the book. And in the end, you know, you have to think about what am I doing this for and who am I doing this for? And that helps clarify what the book is. Yeah. So 
coming to both of like all your Kickstarter projects, like even the the first anthology, and there are two issues of that. I think yes, you did yes. two separate Kickstarters for mm-hmm, them, mm-hmm. and uh, this latest Kickstarter. Tell me a little bit about this process of how did you get into uh, setting up the project? Uh, like how how did you have to feel about uh, the your audience, about the people who you thought would be your backers, and mm-hmm. how did you get down to actually? you know typing it out as a kickstarter project just that that experience of putting it into those words well like i said having elevator pitch helps and then you have to have a very eye catching image because people again like with everything people are looking at a thumbnail of something as they scroll through it so you have to have something that's eye catching as an image a good video is helpful that clearly explains the project and it, it basically is a design exercise because you have to design graphics. I mean, it's almost like doing a blog post or a web page. You basically have a customized page that's for your project and you're pitching the project. So it has to be clear and concise what the project is and what people are getting for the project. And, I, and you know, having people understand Kickstarter, um, you know, I had some relatives that thought it was something like GoFundMe. And I said, no, it's actually a product, you know, selling platform. It's not a donation platform. You know, you're actually right. pre-ordering a project through it. And, you know, one industry that's been very elevated by Kickstarter is board games. I'm a big board gamer. We board game every Saturday. And there's a couple people that I game with that every Kickstarter that comes out, they back it. And they, I don't know how many thousand dollars they spend a year with and, and a lot of times they don't even know what's coming. It's like, oh yeah, I did back that a year ago. I'm so thankful for such people. Yeah, and so it's 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 these these people they just love games and they love learning new ones and they buy a lot of them. And so that's where and so that's where you have these people that are on these platforms that like comics or like art books or like board games and they back stuff because that's stuff that they like. And uh, so I'm I'm asking super technical questions no because worries. I'm always const- constantly thinking about the Kickstarter I really want to do this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also noticed you have a lot of slabs on your Kickstarter. So you have lots of different uh, tiers at which people can support you. Mm-hmm. Is is that like part of the best practices for, for developing it? Is it? Is it a good because I my first thought was that I want to reduce the number of choices for people have maybe two or three slabs. But I see that you have more than seven or eight. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that decision? Well, I think like for the anthology, we had a lot of tiers where different artists, like you could buy mm-hmm. a sketch by a different artist or something like that. And so that ends up making a lot of tiers. Um, I suppose we probably could have compressed that and had people ask for a specific artist or that sort of thing. But the way the way it went down, it it you know, some people were offering slightly different things like pre-drawn sketches or would take commissions or whatever. So a lot of it depends on the mechanics. Like I said, everything is different. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you have to think about when you're doing your Kickstarter is how are you going to make your goal and how much your unit cost is going to be. So you're going to have to get a lot more people to buy it if it's just like one tier that's $30 or something. Right. Like if it's one tier that's $30 and you're trying to raise $20,000, that's a lot of people that have to buy it um and not it, it, it really you just have to make these assessments based on your audience and you know i and and there's just so many variables i mean i was happy with the way it did i mean obviously you always want to you know break expectations but i think that 
that it, it, it did what it needed to do to move the project forward. And you don't necessarily do your Kickstarter trying to sell all the product. I mean, basically, this is the book will still be for sale and people can still buy it. It will be it, it just has made it, it basically what the Kickstarter does is help finance the printing and the design costs and all. There's a lot of costs to the book. So the biggest adv advice I give people is don't get stuff that's going to be expensive for people to ship. Like I know a lot of people that have gotten things like, you know, pins and, you know, patches and stickers and all of those things are great, but they also are very expensive, not only to make, but to ship. So when you start adding a bunch of tiers that have this stuff or doing stretch goals, I mean, I know most people, when they buy your book, that's really all they really want. Um, and they don't want to have to, uh, you know, I mean, they might like bookmarks and patches and stuff like that, but that's not why they backed it. Right. But, exactly. I'll, but I think the reason why it becomes so popular on Kickstarter is as a person running a Kickstarter, you need to have a reason to talk about it. And when you say, oh, we're doing this patch now, that feels like a reason to post about it rather than your repetitive buy my book, please. <laughs> and so I think that's where that has arisen. I don't know if it actually does more than just keep it in your feed and everybody else's feed. I don't know if seeing that you're doing a sticker or a patch is actually what motivates someone to buy the book. And so when you're offering tiers, I think it's smart to think about why are people buying it? Now, people may buy like original commissions and those I've found to be somewhat successful because there's always people that want to commission artwork and this is a way for them to commission it and get some original artwork for you or prints or however you want to do it. And also commissioned artwork tends not to be heavy. Like I make sure that it's smaller than the book so that I don't have to have a bigger box to put it in. Um, and that's actually, we, we did these mini palettes, you know, that are part of the Kickstarter. And I did that because, you know, I had seen a lot of little tiny palettes like on Instagram and stuff. And I did a sketch for Troy and he has a bunch of 3D printers. And of course he engineered it, made it beautiful. I did like this really rough drawing and, he, and then he like figured it all out and made it work really well and printed it out and made it from an engineering standpoint, much be better than anything that I could have done. And one of the big uh, benefits of it is it's not heavy. So it's not really going to add that much to the cost of the shipping, which shipping is one of the huge costs of this project and you're kind of like well how much should i charge for shipping and international shipping is super expensive and i had people say international shipping super expensive and i said yeah that's because international shipping is really expensive and I, I if i i mean that's a big cost to eat you know and that's that's always there's a lot of variables that you have to consider when when pricing and you know i've seen people you know, a couple friends do books where they included shipping and again that just is is you just want to make sure that you don't lose money from the yeah, Kickstarter, but absolutely. it's very easy to do. It, it's very yeah. easy to do. Yeah. And I feel like there's so much guilt attached to adding shipping costs, like to also charge for shipping that I like, I have felt this already, like in my, mm -hmm. like I, I sell it. my prints and I have people who, so I recently, this year I have sent uh, copies of my book to Japan, mm -hmm. South Korea, the UK, the Netherlands. And I have sim just to simplify things on my end and to also 
simplify things for my potential customers so that they don't feel like this is getting too, you know, again, we were just talking about how you don't want it to be too many steps because yes. then they won't mm-hmm. buy it. So just for that, I have a flat shipping fee on my website. And what has happened so many times is that the cost of the book is what the shipping fee was. And the shipping fee is the little bit that I take. And this happens so much for books that are going a long way. Mm -hmm. And it's just something I feel almost guilted into absorbing that cost because Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful that somebody is buying the book that I don't, I want to make it as easy for them as I can. And so much of this kind of uh, self-immolation and like putting yourself down and not really charging for your product, like Mm -hmm. not really standing by the value of your product in a sense. It's like this because you're willing to absorb losses as long as it can go out to people and Mm -hmm. as long as they're not inconvenienced. So much of this is also part of being an artist and, you know, being independent, that Mm -hmm. learning how to charge for what you've done. I think part of the the guilt for that too is just the whole... And and this gets into product design too. Everybody is used to getting cheap product and everybody's used Mm -hmm. to getting Amazon shipping stuff for free. And they are totally not cognizant of the external cost that that exacts on society. And, you know, I just tell people, look, I'm not Amazon. I mean, I would love to ship everything for free, but I mean, you know, one thing that you can guarantee working as a, working artist and i suppose you could say this because i don't want to make it look like artists are unique i think every career that you're in is not and unless you're a banker or something or you you sort of win the lottery or come up with something that (laughs) is groundbreaking and somehow get to reap the benefit of the the what you make from it you know you 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 don't have amazon's resources you just have your resources and you know, you have bills to pay and, you know, expenses and you have to think about it from that standpoint. And I don't think most people would begrudge you. I mean, I think that people just don't know how expensive some of that stuff is unless they're, right. unless you're shipping stuff. And, you know, then you end up losing money when you ship and it costs $25 to ship it, which is a common, a book is heavy. And, you know, in the U.S., I, at the moment, you know, you never know when they'll get rid of this. You're able to ship books for less. Like they have a media mail uh, option that you can ship something and it's significantly less. But that is not an international fee. And, you know, one thing that's nasty about comics is I, I guess people that create comics don't have good lobbyists because a comic book is not considered a book. Mm-hmm. Oh, OK. Yes. Explain that. I, I I wish I understood. Apparently, you're not allowed to use media mail pro- prices to ship comic books. Um, I think you can for graphic novels. Maybe that's considered a book. But it actually even says if you go to the USPS site, comic books are actually specifically excluded from the media mail price. Uh-huh. Isn't okay. that wow. crazy? That, that's really ridiculous for pretty much the country that has made comic books the big deal that they are i would imagine like like they should be a lot more valued in in american mail that's very interesting uh okay coming back to kickstarter Mm -hmm. uh, now i'm thinking about uh goal setting so like you know there's a there's an amount you want Mm -hmm. and then there are stretch goals 
how do you think about that with respect to your budget? Like, do you, uh, so I, I think that, you know, because you do want to have an overfunded Kickstarter, do you aim to meet your budget with the exact, like, you know, if your expenses are so much and your project, you want to make X amount, is X the amount that you ask in your Kickstarter or do you ask for a little less and hope to stretch to that number? That is a really complex question. And I am not sure what the right answer is because I think a lot of it depends on what your guaranteed backer amount is. I mean, I've seen a lot of really big artists set a goal of like $1,000 and then make $300,000. But conversely, um, I've seen people do art projects where it's a very low amount and they just make a little bit over that amount. So I think a lot of it probably depends. And there's probably some sort of, you know, formula somewhere that you can look up that you could probably figure this out. Because I feel like if you have a really low amount, what happens is that once you make that goal, then you don't have as much. And I guess that's where the stretch goals, because that's why people do all the stretch goals is because they want to keep talking about it, but they've met their goal. And right. so you're saying, well, I want to make this amount. And so I think one thing that's interesting about Kickstarter, and they said that this psychologically is why, you know, it has higher stakes than like some of the other platforms where you get, if you don't make your goal, you still get the money. Well, that makes people less inclined. Like if it feels like you're really close, but you're not going to make it, you know, there's that psychological thing. Well, okay, I'll back it then. Right. Um, but I think a lot of, I think there's, again, it's so complicated that I don't know if I could credibly say which is the best way to set it because I've seen it go so many different ways. Like I've seen people with really unrealistic goals and they didn't make it. And I've seen people with really low goals that exceeded them spectacularly. So I think you have to, I think you have to set a realistic goal. Perhaps that's the best way to describe it. Don't make your goal like a million dollars and think that you're going to get that. But, you know, think about what your past books have sold, what your following is, and think about what it costs to print it and how much. And I mean, obviously, when you get money from them, they take a portion plus mm -hmm. the credit card fees. So when you see that amount, they don't get all of that. And then you have to budget all of that money that you've gotten that to fulfill the Kickstarter. And that's where, um, you know, printing costs, shipping costs, um, you know, shipping packaging. Like a lot of people don't think that you're spending a couple hundred dollars on, you know, boxes for boxing your stuff out, um, you know, because I always feel like for a Kickstarter, you're like shipping out the best version your product can be. So you don't just put it in a floppy envelope so it gets crushed. You know, you put it in really nice packaging and, you know, make it look like a premium product. Um, because it is, I mean, it is, it is the, that's sort of the ideal of your book. Like if you're wanting to get those, those, um, spot varnishes and metallic in, you know, the, do it for the Kickstarter thing. Um, but I've seen so many people go crazy on their stretch goals and get things for, for their books that end up dooming the project or making them owe a lot of money. Um, you know, like somebody was telling me recently about an art book that someone had had kickstarted. And something happened. I th there was something wrong with the cover. So they had to eat the cost and print it again. Um, and, you know, sometimes if, if you do, depending where you ship it, sometimes things get damaged on the pallets. I mean, there's a lot of inter there's a lot of hidden things that you don't necessarily think about that can happen, too. Uh, 
you know, and, and sourcing things, you know, sometimes people in the, in the heat of the Kickstarter, cause it's doing really well, promise something that ends up being unbelievably expensive and difficult to get. Right. Yeah. So, that's so true. Yeah. Yes. Like, uh, so uh, now, uh, where is this project currently? Now, you mentioned that you're now mm-hmm. putting it in for printing and this is an independent book. So do you have, uh, do you, uh, how many copies are you printing and what will be this process of, uh, you know, fulfillment for these patrons of yours? Um, I have not decided how many. I, I It's either going to be 500 or 1,000 for this initial print run um, because I haven't decided if I want to do exclusively print on demand or if I want to um, do fulfillment where I'm and and I'm still figuring out those costs. Um, you know, I'm probably going to do a thousand print run because one of the things that I do also is we're gradually. I have a friend that we've started doing traveling sketch travel, and we went to Romania last year. We're going to do a couple more trips this year, and so I was going to use the book like for the people that go on that, and so having right. the stock because after the Kickstarter and all of the initial sales. I will if I do a 500 print run, I won't have that many left. Right. Um, and so I need to have enough stock to carry through. Um, and then I probably, after I would sell through the print run, it will probably go live on Ingram print on demand. Um, unless a publisher picks it up, which I'll have to see, you know, how those numbers, I mean, that's one of those things now is looking at those numbers and figuring out what is the best future for your book. And that right. that's hard to say because it has changed so much. Um, when If you've done a lot of children's books, everybody's been exposed to SCBWI, which is the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And for years, they were very anti-self-publishing. Like there was, there was like vanity publishing, you should never do it. But what's happened is the publishing industry has altered so much. Most of the people that worked in publishing as editors and designers now don't work at publishing companies anymore. They've been redu- they've been laid off, and so now they're all consulting for people doing their own publishing. So the whole right. market has completely shifted to how people get books, how people you know. And really, when you see a major publisher, their biggest sales are probably going to be to libraries and to schools, and a lot of those markets are in upheaval too. So, how you consider marketing your product now is almost exclusively probably going to be direct market. Um, And I think that that's just the nature. And in a way it's, it's not surprising because the marketing model of most publishers was most published publications fail. And then you have a couple people who prop up that industry. And so this is sort of, I think eventually big publishers will mostly be curators and so they will curate content that gets really popular. They think they can make money on. I mean, one thing having a publisher does help with is fulfillment because that's the biggest thing. Like, do you want to spend your day? I mean, that's one thing uh, with these mini palettes because I put them for sale on and where and it's great selling them. But it's me that packages them up and takes them to the post office yeah, with my husband. All you know? those so, small palettes. Yeah, you know, like when you sell books, it's exciting. Another. But yeah, you have to, you're the fulfillment for that stuff. And it's so, do you do some sort of situation where somebody, that's one thing that a mainstream publisher does do is fulfillment. And they sometimes have deals for warehouses and for warehouse stuff overseas. And that's like for international markets and thinking about if you're going to do versions. And I I don't have plans for this yet, but just from seeing children's publishing, 
where you decide to do translations of your books, which I don't know if that's right. something in your mind too, like doing, you know, multiple language editions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. And, you know, I like, like you mentioned, it's a constantly shifting landscape of how uh, independent pub, it's, you know, uh, uh, there was a sense of independent publishing versus traditional publishing, but now there are possibilities where they uh, are in service to each other and they create a space. One creates a space for the other and both of them work in harmony. And I like the idea of an independently published book later being picked up by a publisher and then acquiring a second life in yes. you know, better distribution channels and all of these different ideas. And the independent run being a sort of proof of concept of how well the book does and who the who the author is. I think you're seeing that happen more and more. And I think you're seeing a lot of like comic book companies now are more and more using Kickstarter. And I'm convinced it's probably more for the marketing. And, you know, I, I'm on a couple of Facebook groups for people that publish novels and stuff like that. And it's really interesting. As a matter of fact, I highly recommend joining them if you're going to do a book, even though our book is not what most of these people are publishing. Most of it is fiction. Um they, a lot of them really go into the numbers of who's backing and it's really interesting seeing their process and how they figure out their marketing plan and you can learn from them in a way that is really helpful to your project. I mean, publishing, I think, especially after, you, if you noticed Brandon Sanderson, I don't know if you read fantasy, but um, he did oh, the I Kickstarter do, yes. for his book and it raised, was it close to $50 million dollars? I think it was the large. Is it the largest Kickstarter for a I book? Think it, I think it. I think it's a, one of the largest Kickstarters ever. I mean, I right. had no idea he was that popular, and it it and of course this friend that backs a bunch of games. He's also a fan of this author, and he's and he's like, <laughs> oh yeah, I just ordered one of the. He claimed he was getting it for his son. Yeah. Let's let's be so Brandon honest. Kicks, Brandon Sanderson finished uh, the the Wheel of Time series, yes, which is yeah. one of my favorite fantasy. Uh, series of all times mm -hmm. and I really appreciate him for that because uh, like when I found out about Robert Jordan's death I was just devastated at oh, the no. <laughs> idea that this story would not finish mm -hmm. and uh, like I'm not a big fan of his writing per se but I'm really like I admire him for his work ethic just the fact that he churns out so many stories mm -hmm. he finishes so many stories like that's something I'm deeply envious of as mm -hmm. somebody who has abandoned so many projects before i just love the fact that he has an idea and then he makes the book and there's the book mm -hmm. well i think that's probably the hardest thing is is actually getting it finished and seeing a project from beginning to end it's so easy i mean for every project you see that someone finishes there's probably 10 that they didn't <laughs> and it, it's so you're kind of seeing the the stuff that actually gets to fruition and the thing that was amazing about that was he kind of was like, I wrote these four books while I was fulfilling my regular book contract and I just thought I'd throw up on, I mean, he's always been really good at marketing himself and selling his books that way. But there are a lot of people that that's how they're selling their books. They're marketing. I mean, the way, the way to traditional publishing because of, and, and because of the way it's been reduced, is that the right word? I mean, Harper Collins, they were on strike a couple months ago because yeah. they've reduced the workforce so much they don't have time to do anything. And I know with children's publishing, but I suspect it's all publishing. They said that now the way that they always kind of pushed you into doing children's publishing, if you're writing, was to get a literary agent. And mm. literary agents 
kind of were unpaid workforce for the publishers to be gatekeepers to bring only the best manuscripts. But now I've heard that even the agents are spamming these people because they have so few people to look at them. You right. know, and so even if you do, if I sold a manuscript today, it probably wouldn't get on the publishing list for years. And so right. it's kind of like, how long do you want to wait for this? And like you said, you're probably better off doing your book. And then a publisher, if they see there's a huge interest in it, they could easily republish it. Yeah, yeah. Like that's that's such a great point. Like all these kinds of, I don't know, uh, like maximizing profits and like squeezing the last cent out of everything that's possible. They've reduced their workforces and so many of these filtering mechanisms are not in place anymore. So you have like these vanity projects. So you have a lot of celebrity authors who are just ghostwriting things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they end up eating most of that publishing houses, marketing budget and their distribution budget. So there's very little left for actual up and coming authors. And on then you are, of course, you're part of these millions of people who are now writing, who now want to become writers. And all these filtration mechanisms of literary agent and editor are all all of them are understaffed, so they're not effectively working. Exactly. So that this sort of puts a really interesting position for Kickstarter and independent publishing and even uh, people building independent audiences, like, like a mailing list, for example, as a proof of concept, as your effective filter demonstrated, your value being demonstrated to mm -hmm. a publishing agency or to a literary agent, that this is who you are because these are the things you've been able to do. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I kind of, and you probably guess this, I'm, I'm not in favor of middle people because I think that, and I think at one point there was a, it was very necessary. I mean, I think that at one time to access a magazine in New York, you needed to have an agent that knew them and went to, you know, cocktail parties. But now that, that not only has the whole magazine industry and, and, and editorial industry become extremely reduced for the same reasons that every other thing we've talked about has, you know, I don't want to say corporate greed, but it's sort of like everything is being, it, it, it's sort of like by squeezing these mainstream things, you're seeing a growth. Again, this is like cutting down all the trees and you're seeing like all this growth happening or something. There's, right. I don't think it's necessarily bad for creators. I think a lot of people, and, and this gets to be with preconceived notions of anything that you want to do. If you think, if, if you want to do things the way that it's always been done, it's probably going to be really frustrating and long, and you're probably not going to be happy. Um, I actually, and, and my friends will probably listen to this. I, I have a couple friends that kickstarted a children's book, and they mm -hmm. said, this is all your fault because you talked us into it. But they actually did really <laughs> well and because they had, they had, they sent it out to a bunch of publishers. I mean, the book that they're doing is really beautiful. The illustrator is really good. Um, the story is really cute. But the problem is, is that it it is just not what people are buying. It's not that the book's bad. It's just that the stuff that these houses are looking for is very specific. Most of it educational. Um, and there's nothing good or bad about it. It's just if you want to do your own thing. I mean, that's why it's kind of emboldened me because I've got I'm working on another comic anthology project with some other illustrator friends. And I also have a picture book I've been working on for years that that I mean, it's gotten a lot of good feedback, like people have liked the dummy, but it's one of those things that's kind of a more artsy concept. So it's probably not going to be picked up by publishers now, 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, why not just do the, do it myself? And then Kickstarter is a way to at least get enough funding for it that when you're selling it, like on your website or whatever, that that ends up being um, sort of the icing on the cake. But you've already made back your expenses. I mean, for most of us, you know, you're probably doing well to you know make your expenses and be able to you know cover the time that you put into it. I mean, there are some cases where people make a lot more than that and that's great too i mean of course when you make a lot more than that again a large number amount on kickstarter means you have to fulfill all that and a lot of people use fulfillment services and those those are great but they cost you so it's kind of like is it better for me to do it or is it better for me to hire someone to do it um i mean i i finally invested in a and i recommend this too in a thermal label printer (laughs) And I said, I can't believe I fulfilled two Kickstarters without this. Is 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 that is that what people used to print labels uh, yes. for stickers and things? Yes, because the first two Kickstarters, I printed it out and taped them on the box. And just by by switching to this will save me days. Oh yes, all right, yeah. I've I've read about uh like I've I, I read something about a thermal printer that people are using just for stickers. Like art That's stickers. That's what this is. Yeah, this is. Well, this isn't for art stickers. This is just for shipping labels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it's, it's I, little things like that for fulfillment that make. I mean, when you've had to box up a couple hundred things at once, I mean, it is a huge amount. Like for all the boxes, like your hands get really dry. Like it's all this stuff that it's <laughs> like fulfillment is even if it's from your online shop. I mean, it's it takes time. It does. It really does. Like I, on my web shop, I put a notice that please give me like two, three weeks to do it because I'm going to procrastinate first and foremost. Like I love the fact that you gave me this order, but I'm already thinking about the hassle of sending it to you. So I'm going to push it and then I'm going to finally guilt myself into doing it when I feel like it's getting too late. Mm -hmm. So upfront, I have to tell them that, hey, this is going to take a little bit of time. So you have to give me that. I'm really fortunate that the people who order from me give me that time and I can only assume that a lot of people don't order from me for that reason that hey this guy's <laughs> going to take like two three weeks to deliver I'll just buy something else from someone else or I'll just go to Amazon and get it in two days well I so, think the thing unique about your shop is people are getting it because it's you and yeah. and so they're willing to wait for it that it takes there was a comic that I loved as a kid and um, you never knew when you were going to get another issue, really. She took four months, six months to do each one. I mean, the issues were beautiful and the art was perfect. Uh, but you just sort of, there was no internet back then. It just sort of would arrive when it would arrive. Mm-hmm. I think this this attitude is actually, uh, un, like, it's underappreciated. So, like, even coming to the idea of traditional versus independent publishing, uh, now, thinking of large distribution channels, there's so much that, you know, certain projects like niche projects or niche subject projects, they will lose because they will not appeal to the kind of scales that traditional publishing would like exactly. for, to, to meet success criteria. So there are a lot of projects that are worthy projects, things that deserve to be done, but simply because they cannot have so many thousands of sales, they are not uh, economically feasible for a large press to do. Now, this doesn't mean that that project is not good. So it's still worthy. And therefore, these me- these mechanisms of independent publishing, whether it's Kickstarter, whether it's absorbing the cost and then selling it and distributing it yourself within your own network, 
they are so interesting to consider and the more that they are formalized the more that people do it and they exercise different ideas and then those ideas proliferate and more people pick up on them and try to do those same things the better it gets for everyone because you have a greater diversity of literature out there exactly uh, more ideas yeah. finally making it into books not having to wait for this extraordinarily long pipeline which is 3 or 4 years in some cases that your book sees the light of day in some like maybe some things are just so time bound that maybe by the time it releases the market is moved on and people don't buy it anymore it has really hit a, the, the whole publishing um i guess what we say the the model the publishing model is is really i mean i think the model of every product is changing dramatically for a variety of different reasons not just because of their corporate uh overlords but also because of supply chains and who's manufacturing and i think 3d printers are are becoming i mean you know you know like this little palette i mean we everything's done here my husband prints them out and you mm-hmm. know he assembles them so useful to have an in-house mechanical engineer <laughs> i know i know it's it's very you know he, he his latest 3d printer is really good too so it doesn't require much clean up i don't know if that's an obsession you've gotten into being an engineer yourself uh, there's not pretty- yet but it's something that really fascinates me well it's it's interesting you know kind of how he figures out the structure of how stuff's going to be like so he prints like 10 or 12 at a time um and then and then assembles them and it's just really and he actually has it so he can do two different colors of filament too so it's got like because it has an interchangeable base it has um so it can clip onto your sketchbook or it can kind of wrap around your hand with velcro And so I said, well, you need to make it really obvious because the way he did it, it's a friction fit. So, uh, so they put it in the right way. So the arrow is a different color, and that's just uh-huh. printed in. So it's it's pretty cool. I mean, there's, uh, I have not done a lot of industrial design lately, but whenever I would get a project that required like 3D stuff, it's kind of like, do I learn a 3D program or do I just pay Troy to do it because he already knows how to do it? Um, because I. You know, that's a whole other skill set that takes. I mean, I've always wanted to learn ZBrush because I think it's really cool and I see so much artwork on ArtStation, it looks amazing. But the learning curve would take so much time from what I do that it's kind of like yeah. should I bother with it? Yeah, absolutely. Like I think uh rationing your time and energy is again like because you're doing so many things as an independent professional. you're already uh, th- putting on so many hats at different times of the day mm-hmm. that i think you have to be able to take this call like i i'm such i'm a very uh, rabid individualist and to my own uh, detriment it really eats up a lot of my energy because i'm not comfortable uh, delegating responsibility i'm just i feel insecure about someone else having you know to do it and then me having to take the quote unquote consequences of something that i'm not exactly pleased with but mm-hmm. that's not the way to get big things done like i think if you want to achieve big things you have to be able to work with other people and to to sort of assimilate that into your project like your anthology like i think that's just wonderful that you're able to get different writers and artists together mm-hmm. and together you're running this kickstarter and there are so many fulfillment tiers that are satisfied by someone's writing or someone else's drawing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it works for all it makes like something that's bigger than any one person could make as it makes doing projects like that particularly easier because they they kind of especially on anthologies are kind of their own animal 
And mm-hmm. it's it's not something that's done as much in mainstream publishing. And I'm not sure why that is, but it, it's definitely a, a really fun group effort, seeing what different people do. And it's a way to tell a lot of different stories. And um, as a matter of fact, the one I'm working on now is like we've each taken a fairy tale and we're retelling it. They're kind of unusual ones. And it's, it's fun. It's a great way to work with other artists mm-hmm. and people that you've always wanted to work. And it's a collaborative effort without you like inking each other's work or, you know, it's sort <laughs> of like you're, you have a part of it that's your own, but it's still sort of in a shell of a, you know, overarching theme. And that kind of makes it very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to talk about urban sketching as yeah. well, which we haven't yet touched upon. But let's take a let's take a couple of minutes and then let's come back to it. We'll talk about how you discovered urban sketching, what you needed from it and what it gave you and your journey with urban sketchers. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. In part two, Christina talks about urban sketching, her role in building a community and how to not only make a life but also a living out of being an artist and illustrator. If you have questions and would like to be part of our discussion, join 8,000 other readers of the Sneaky Art Post. Add Sneaky Art to your inbox using the link in the episode description. Thank you for listening. I'm glad for your time, and I'll see you in the next one. Thank you.